Hi, this is Dr. John Ankerberg. I invite you to dig into God's Word today with my dear friend, the late Dr. Wayne Barber, as he leads you verse by verse through the Bible. Well, would you turn with me this morning to the book of Galatians? I think in a few weeks your Bible will be trained and it'll just open by itself. It's been trained for Philippians. Now we're going to have to train it for Galatians. Galatians chapter 1, we're going to be looking at verses 3 through 5 today as we talk about the gospel of grace. The gospel of grace. The Apostle Paul has stepped forward as God's authority. You see, God's Word has been challenged. Anytime error gets around us, God's Word is challenged. And Paul is the man. He held up his badge. He says in verse 1, Paul, an apostle. God's Word is so precious. And God had these men called apostles in that day. These were the ones that gave us the New Testament. The kind of apostle that the Apostle Paul was, was unique in his day and non-existent in our day. An apostle had to be appointed by Christ himself as we saw the last time. Verse 1 tells us, Paul, an apostle, not of men, neither by the agency of man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. We saw that a wit he had to be a witness of the resurrected Christ. This, these apostles were so unique. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 1, he says, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? The apostles were not only appointed by Christ, but they were authenticated by Christ. And the way they were authenticated, we saw from Hebrews, was through signs and wonders and miracles. There's a lot of people still looking for that pattern today. You'll not find that pattern today. That pattern was relegated to the apostles and to Christ. Can Christ do a miracle anytime He wants? Absolutely. That's not what I'm saying. But you don't go looking for a pattern of signs, wonders, and miracles. These were given to the apostles to, to show authenticity as to who they were. But not only that, the apostles were given authority by Christ. In fact, Christ was their authority. He lived in them. He said in Matthew 28, All authority has been given unto me. It doesn't say, I'm giving it to you. Oh, no. He came to live in them. And to the degree they were willing to bow before him was to the measure they began to experience his authority. It's always his authority, never ours. The whole message of God's grace that Paul had taught them there at Galatia had been completely destroyed when they chose to listen to false teachers that had come amongst them teaching a message of works, they chose to go back to that old works mentality. They chose religion over a relationship with Jesus Christ. Now I want you to know, and you'll see it over and over again in Galatians, there's no way to mix religion with Christianity. There is no way. And expect to experience any of the joy, any of the intimate relationships that people can have with Christ and then the relationships they can have with one another, there's no way that can happen when you try to mix the religious works mentality with what Christianity is. Paul begins early in his epistle, right here, what we're going to look at today, to lay the foundation for what he's going to build on for the rest of this whole book of Galatians. And it's amazing to study the life of Paul. I love it. I love to study his epistles. Many people get on me and say, do you ever do an Old Testament book? Every now and then I do, just make everybody else happy. But I love the epistles. 
I love the epistles. I love Paul. People say he's an egotist. That's ridiculous. He's the most humble man you've ever read about. Here's a man that's been broken. Here's a man that was blinded for three days. You think he didn't understand a little bit about the Lordship of Christ? But what he does when he writes a book, he, he, he's like a lawyer building a case. He has this block and then this block and then this block and then this block. And you always know that. He starts here and begins to build all the way through. That's what he's doing in the book of Galatians. And verses 3 through 5 are so powerful, we're going to look at today, because they're so concise. It's a picture of what the gospel of grace really is. And I want us to read those. Every word is powerfully packed. And remember, he's going to come back and build off of these things he's saying now later on. Verse 3 says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins so that he might rescue us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forevermore. Amen. Now, there are four things that I want us to see about the gospel of grace. You say, Wayne, you're not very evangelistic. Well, just strap your seatbelts on. We're going to find out whether I'm evangelistic or not. Let's just see what the gospel of grace is all about. First of all, the peace that grace provides. That's the first thing we want to see in this message on the gospel of grace, the peace that grace provides. Look at verse 3. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when I study Paul's epistles, it's amazing to me that that phrase, grace to you and peace, is found in 10 of his epistles. It's found in Romans. It's found in 1st and 2nd Corinthians, in Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, and also Philemon. Exactly that way. Grace to you and peace. It's always in that order. Grace and then peace. Until a person experiences the saving grace of God, he cannot know peace with God. I hope we understand that. You see, man is at enmity with God. He is separated from God because of Adamic sin. He was born into this separation. He was born into sin. This is the virus that plagues humanity. And there is no cure outside of the Lord Jesus Christ. Religion cannot begin to bridge the gap between man and God. Religion offers no peace whatsoever. But grace is all about not what man can do to reconcile the situation, but what God has done to reconcile the situation. Grace is all about Jesus coming and dying for us on the cross, paying a debt he did not owe. When we owe a debt, we could not pay. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8 is wonderful to help us realize that you cannot be saved by any fleshly work. It says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. So at the very moment of our receiving God's grace, that which He has done for us, Christ comes to live within us. And when you receive Jesus, when I received Jesus into our, my heart, and when you received Him into your heart, you didn't realize it, and I didn't realize it, but we were making a statement. We were making a statement. And what we were saying is religion does not work. Religious works could not have gotten us to that place. You see, we had to come to realize there was nothing we could do to save ourselves. 
And you see, the very fact that we invited Jesus to come and live in us and, to, and trusted Him to do the saving work for us on the cross, that He had done that, it immediately speaks of the fact that religion does not work. Only God's grace saves us. And that's saving grace. Saving grace gives us peace with God that is unconditional. Uh, it says in Romans chapter 5 and verse 1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we exalt in hope of the glory of God. Nobody, nothing can ever disturb the relationship we have with God the Father through Jesus Christ. That is an unconditional situation. When we receive it, it can never be distorted in any way. However, living grace is something different. We saw this in Philippians. We'll see it beautifully brought out in Galatians. Living grace is for the believer to experience day by day. Now, this is very conditional. It's conditional upon our willingness to yield to Christ, to let Jesus be Jesus in us. This is what Paul is referring to in Galatians because he is writing to believers who have already received saving grace. Living grace is Christ living his life in and through us. How many times have you heard that in the last year? Well, you're going to hear it a lot more. He says it in Galatians 2.20, which is a verse we have referenced from time to time. Peter has made this foolish mistake of going back to that old religious works mentality, and Paul has to stand him up and rebuke him to his face. And he says in that context, in verse 20 of chapter 2 of Galatians, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives. Where does he live? In me. That's exactly right. And the life I now live, I live by faith, by faith in the one who loved me and gave himself for me. You see, just as saving grace produces peace with God, living grace produces the peace of God. Now, that is something that's very conditional. You may be here today and you have experienced saving grace. You're at peace with God, but you're not living in the peace of God because you may have made the same mistake the Galatians made. You've gone back to doing things your way instead of yielding to Christ. Galatians chapter 5 and verse 22, for instance, says, But the fruit of the Spirit, not something you work up yourself, not a book you read or somebody you talk to or a program you watched on television. He says, The fruit of the Spirit is love. And then he says it's joy and it's peace. It's something the Spirit of God has got to produce within us. That's the peace of God. Can I ask you a question this morning? Are you living in the peace of God this morning? Have you let it rest? Have you laid it down? Have you just simply said, Lord Jesus, you're in control. I just want to be obedient to you. Whatever you want is what I want. That's the peace of God. You already have the peace with God, but living grace is when you experience the peace of God. Through Christ and only through Christ and the grace that He offers to you and I, can we have peace, first of all with God, secondly with others, and thirdly, most importantly, within ourselves, within ourselves. Saving grace produces peace with God. Living grace produces peace, the peace of God. Paul is not simply greeting the believers here. So many people in commentaries pick this thing up and say he's just giving a simple greeting and they say, now let's get to the meat. Oh, no, no. This is God's Word. It's inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. Every word is powerful. It's packed with what God wants it to say. 
what he's doing is laying a foundation. He's trying to show these believers who have lost this peace. You say, well, how do you know that, Wayne? Because he says, where is the sense of blessing that you once had? He says over in chapter 5, you were running well. You were running well. Who has hindered you? You see, these people have turned to religion and lost everything they could have had in their relationship. And that's what religion does to all of us. When we choose to do it our way, we are walking away from the fullness of what we could have experienced in Christ Jesus. He makes certain that nobody misunderstands the source of this grace and of this peace in verse 3. He says, grace to you and peace. Now watch. From God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now when he uses that little phrase, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, he uses a little preposition there for the word from, apo. Apo. You see it on the screen. It simply designates a source. Where is it coming from? It's coming from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Religion does not offer this. But there's something he says here that I think theologically you need to put into your cap. He points to the oneness of the Godhead. The preposition from governs, listen, both the Father and the Son. Don't let me lose you here. Stay right with me. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, you're still not with me. It is not from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. That's not what he says. He would have used two of those words. Apo would have been used twice. No, sir. It's a very technical thing. When he only uses one, he pulls God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ into one. And what you see here, he's showing you that God the Father and God the Son are one and the same. He does the same thing in verse 1 with the word through. When he says, but through Jesus Christ, and not through God the Father, but and God the Father. There's only one God. There is only one God in three persons. And it's a beautiful picture there theologically of the Godhead. This clearly reflects the preeminence that the Apostle Paul gave to Jesus Christ being God. And he understands that and he bows before him. Also notice the triple, just for your, for your theological cap, notice the triple designation of Jesus. He says, the Lord, that expresses his rank, his exalted rank. Jesus, which speaks of his saving work, and Christ, which speaks of his divine commission. So the peace that we're looking for, the peace that the lost world is looking for with God only comes by the grace of God. And once they have the peace with God, the peace that you're looking for from day by day, moment by moment, is only found in Jesus Christ. How many times I've heard somebody say, I need to get away for about three weeks. I've got to get my head together. Well, the problem is you took the problem with you. The problem is the flesh, and if the flesh is not dealt with, and if the flesh does not surrender, there will be no peace even after the three weeks you've taken off. You've got to deal with, I've got to deal with sin in my life. I've got to reckon with my flesh. And when I do, then grace, God's living grace, offers me a peace that passes all understanding. So the peace that grace offers. Secondly, the price that grace paid the Christ that grace paid. Jesus is the embodiment of all grace. Paul says in 2 Timothy 2.1, he says to Timothy, he says, be strong in the grace that is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's only found in him. And look what he did for us. Look at the price he paid for us. In verse 4, 
It says, who gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us. Now that word gave is in the aorist tense. That means at a certain point in time, he gave himself. That's not only biblical, that's historical. We know that not only here, 1 John 1, 14, when he's birthed, but now we know that he died. He gave himself at a certain point in time. The phrase gave himself means he died. He died. It refers to his death on the cross. In fact, in verse 1, as Paul was beginning the epistle, he said, Paul, not an apostle, I mean an apostle rather, not sent from men nor through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. The fact that he was raised from the dead means that he died. There is no resurrection without a death. The book of the Revelation gives us a look into the prophetic future of what's going to take place one day of what I believe prior, just right, right prior to the seven years of tribulation on this earth. And I, you know where I stand. I believe the church is going to be in heaven. We will not fight. You want to stay here? Stay here. That's your problem. But I believe the rest of us going to go. He takes a sealed book from the Father in Revelation chapter 5. And in verse 6, look what it says. And I saw, I love these pictures. There's nothing that grabs me in Scripture anymore than these kind of pictures. And I saw between the throne. Now get your mind out of here. This is looking to heaven for a minute. With the four living creatures and the elders, a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Standing as if what? Slain. There's your resurrected Christ in heaven right before that last, those last days of what will take place on this earth. So Christ died. What did it cost for you and I to be here and here this morning? Christ died. He gave of himself. And as Galatians 1.1 says, he rose from the dead. This is the basis of our salvation. Why in the world would Paul have to remind believers of the basis of their salvation? Oh, there's a huge reason here. What was the, his attitude when Christ came to die for us? We said it was in the aorist tense, but I didn't tell you. It's in the active voice. What does that mean? Not only did he give himself, but he willingly gave himself. The word didomi means to willingly give something for the benefit of somebody else. The word didomi. So the active voice means that Jesus chose to die for our sins. Now that's incredible. If he was made to die for our sins, that's one thing. But if he chose to die for our sins, that's incredible. And that's the picture that Paul draws for us. No one made Christ die for our sin. He chose. When did he make this decision? To die for us. The King James Version correctly translates Revelation 13 and verse 8. And if this doesn't touch your heart, then I'll tell you what, this would be a great morning just to get saved. I'll tell you what happened, folks. We have lost the wonder and the awe of our salvation. We don't understand why it is that we can be in here this morning and even understand the truth that God wants us to hear. It's because of what Christ did for us on the cross. And He did it willingly. He chose to do it. Revelation 13, 8 says, and all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Do you understand what's being said here? Jesus in heaven, 
before the world had ever been created, before sin had ever become, become a, a problem on earth, stood in heaven as the Lamb saying to His Father, Father, I'm ready to go. I'm ready to go. He made His decision before you and I ever even thought about making a, a choice to sin. He chose to come and die for you and I. Why did He give of Himself? Verse 4 says in Galatians chapter 1, he goes on to say, who gave himself for our sins. He died for our sins. Romans 3.23 says very clearly, and Romans and Galatians are commentaries on each other. He says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That doesn't, mean, that doesn't matter if you're a Jew, and that doesn't matter if you're a Gentile. It doesn't matter if you've had all the covenants and the promises and et cetera and all the religious activity. He said, you died. You were born in your sin and you are a sinner. And if a Gentile, the pagan world, you can't point a finger. Every man born of woman was born into sin. We were all lost and we had no hope whatsoever. But Christ came and gave of himself willingly the sinless sacrifice, the God-man for our sins. For grace to be extended to mankind, it cost Christ death on the cross for our sins. If man could in any way attain righteousness by any religious work, then Christ would have never had to left the throne of glory and come down here masking His glory in human flesh and going to the cross and bearing our sin. The very fact that we claim to be Christian means we're not religious because we know what religion cannot ever accomplish. Jesus had to accomplish it for us. The peace that grace provides, the price that grace paid. But the third thing I want you to see is the purpose that grace pictures. There's a purpose of Him dying for our sins. There's a purpose here. And the picture, the portrait of it is incredible who gave himself for our sins. Why? So that he might rescue us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. Now what purpose does Christ dying for our sins accomplish? What does it accomplish for us? Who gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us. Now the word deliver is ekaro. Ekaro, it means to take out of. You've got a box of chocolates and you want to reach in and take one out of it. That's the word, ekaro. Only it's a little different than that. Uh, ek, out of, haro, which means to take out. It, it has also to, the choice of what is taken out. Now I can hear the Calvinists jump up and say, yes, Brother Wade, bless your heart. He means the elect here. I'm, excuse me, but he does not. And I hate to, to, to pop your little bubble. But if the choice is taken out. In other words, he didn't choose the animals and he didn't choose the trees and the stones and the, and the other created things on this earth to be taken out from this bondage. He chose to deliver humanity from the present evil age. Now this strikes the keynote of the whole epistle. This is the keynote of the whole epistle. He has taken us out from under something that has been pulling us down for quite a while. Christ came to die for our sins to deliver us. And from what? A state of bondage. A bondage to what? This present evil age. Now, I don't know if you've studied Romans or not, but Romans banks more on he saved us from the penalty of sin. Yes, he did. And he saves us from the power of sin. Yes, he did. But Galatians has a little different focus on what he came to do. 
which is germane to the rest of the epistle. He wants them to understand this very thing. Our sins are simply indications of our bondage, a bondage to a system of living and thinking that is found in this world. You turn the television on, you're listening to that system. You turn the radio on, I listen to 770 sub. Y'all listen to that? That's kind of an interesting program. I mean, every screwball in America is on that thing, but I, I enjoy listening to it from time to time. And I hear stuff on that thing, and I'm thinking, good grief. Get a clue, people. But you know, it's interesting. I love to listen to it to kind of keep up with what the system's doing to people's minds that are all around us. Christ not only delivers us from our personal sins, but he, from the pull and the power of a system that's around us from the way the world does what it does. Now look carefully at this, because I'm going somewhere with it, and so is Paul. Verse 4, who gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us, take us out from under this of this present evil age. Now what does he mean by present evil age? Well, the Greek word for age is the word eon, A-I-O-N. It's an order or a system in this context. It can be a time period, but here it's more of an order or a system, an evil, harmful way of thinking and doing. Now, the same word is used over in Romans 12 in the same way in verse 2, when Romans 12, 2 says, and do not be conformed to this world to that system, to, that, to the, the people around you, yes, but the system of thinking, the way something is done. The word world here is used. And so therefore in Romans and in Galatians, it seems to be a system, a way of thinking. Do you realize how we have to almost be deprogrammed when we come to church to meet together in God's Word? Because we live for six days in a world that is totally, totally in contrast with what God says. And every time you get into the Word, you've got to understand that your mind's going to pull you a certain way, but you've been set free from that kind of bondage. You can now listen to what God says, which sets you free. In this age that we live in, sin prevails, and therefore the law begin, belongs to this age. You know, there's coming an age when righteousness will prevail. I have many of my great brothers in Christ, and they say, oh, Wayne, we're in the millennium now. That's the most ridiculous statement I've ever heard on earth. How could we be in the millennium now? Because does righteousness reign? Does righteousness reign? Did you watch the news this morning? Did you watch it last night? You think righteousness rules and reigns? No, no, it doesn't. That's why the law is tied to this age. Why? Because the law was given to expose sin. And sin is a part of this age. Righteousness does not rule. But what he's talking about in Galatians, and I want to make sure you hear me, there is a system in this world, and he's not negating that. But the narrow focus of what he's talking about is not just the system of the world on the radio that you listen to. What he's talking about is the religious system of this world. Christ not only died on the cross to deliver us from our, our sins, but from the religious thinking and system of this world. I don't care where you go, the darkest part of Africa, you're going to find religion. People will worship a tree, a stump. They'll worship a stone if they have to. But you're going to find a religion. And man has come up with his own way of worship. He's come up with his own type of religion. And we have been set free from every bit of it. Verse 3 says in chapter 4, I want you to look over here because this word is used again and in another context. And when you want to know what a word means, you check the whole of what somebody's writing of that particular book. 
to find out how he uses it. Over in chapter 4 and verse 3, he uses the word world again, but he shows how narrow its meaning is in the book of Galatians. Chapter 4 and verse 3. He says in chapter 4, verse 3, So also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under, now watch carefully, the elemental things of the what? Of the what? Of the world. There's our word right there. The word elemental is a Greek word. It means row by row by row by row, or it can be translated the ABCs. I never will forget the joy that I had when I finally learned my ABCs my senior year of high school. No, but I... ABCs, the ABCs. Now, what, what is he talking about here? All right, let's keep on. Verse 8, 9, and 10 of chapter 4 show how the tie comes that the world system that he speaks of in Galatians, he's not negating anything else, but in Galatians is the world of, of religion, the way they live, the way they think, the way they act. Look at verse 8. However, at that time, when you did not know God, you were slaves by the, to, wit, to those which by nature are no gods. Now he points immediately to the religion they had before. These were Gentiles. These were not Jews. These were, everybody has a religion of some kind. Verse 9, but now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? And then to show that he's talking about religion, look at verse 10. You observe days and months and seasons and years, and he points them right back to the slavery they once had to religion no matter what shape or form that it took. This led him to say in verse 11, I fear for you that perhaps I have labored over you in vain. And Paul is describing both Jewish and Gentile religions as elemental, as ABCs. Why? Because they're merely human and they will never rise to a divine level. Thank God we've been set free from any religion. We've been set free. We've been given a relationship. You see, both Jewish and Gentile religion are centered on man-made system of works. They're all based on what man can do for God. The Pharisees even added 613 commandments. They didn't think it was enough. We have been set free from this system by the death of Christ on the cross. What was the motive of his dying? Why, why did he give of himself for our sins? To deliver us, to rescue us. From what? From the penalty of sin, yes. From the power of sin, yes. But also from the pull and the tug of the religious mindset that's in this present age. Matter of fact, if you don't think that this religion is relegated to this present sinful age, when the Antichrist comes, that will be his main ploy is going to be religion. It'll be a religious leader that will step right alongside the Antichrist that will deceive this world that's left on this earth. Galatians 1.4 says, Who gave himself for our sins so that he might rescue us, deliver us from this present evil age. Well, we've been set free, folks. Everybody thinks freedom is the right to do as you please. No, freedom is the power to do as you should. I've been watching something on television. You know, you can't get too many good things on. So I found it's a Discovery Channel and the Learning Channel. The Learning Channel challenges me too much, but the Discovery Channel is kind of fun. I also like the Animal Planet Channel uh, or something. I don't know what it is, but it's about animals. 
And uh, I love that one because it has the funniest animals. <laughs> I really enjoy that. And uh, one of the things that, that uh, I don't like one program, and that's that guy that fools around with those, allig- oh, those crocodiles. <laughs> you know, his elevator has never really touched the top floor. His dipstick never quite reached the oil. You know, it's, it's, it's amazing what's going on with this guy. My granddaughter loves that program. I think the best program they'll ever have on there is when the crocodile eats him alive right on the program, and everybody says, due to technical difficulties, we'll not have this next week. We're still looking for him in the belly of a crocodile. But hey, there's one program that I like. That, that They go in and they take these animals that have been deprived of food and water. It's a beautiful thing. And they, this grizzly bear is particular. When they, they fly over with a helicopter and they shoot them. And I can hear somebody, animal rights protect. But they did what? Just relax, just relax. They shot him with a hypodermic needle. And the thing puts him to sleep. Thunk, he just falls down to sleep. And they go down, it takes about 12 of them in a big net. They put them into a, a net and they take it up. And, and, and a helicopter takes it up. They put it into a cage. And then they fly it to a certain point and they, and they drop that cage down. And the first thing is, when they, they wait for it to wake up, <laughs> you want to be there when a grizzly bear wakes up? It's noticeable how they all run and jump in the truck. And they pull that top, that thing out, and that grizzly bear finally gets awake, banging on the cage. He's wooing. The world has put me into bondage. And he realizes suddenly that that door of that cage is open. And he gets out, and I'll tell you what, the way he runs is not the way he normally runs. He'll just take off and run and throw his paws up in the air. And woo, he's just thinking, I'm free, I'm free, I am free. Now, wouldn't it be stupid if that grizzly bear decided, you know what, I think I liked it in the cage better than I like it out here. And he turned around and walked right back into that cage and let him shut it on him. That's exactly what the Galatians did. They have been set free from a religious mindset. They've been set free from committee meetings where we have to come up with something and ask God to bless it. They've been set free from 16 different rules that makes you spiritual. And if you don't have your quiet time, God's going to kill you. They've been set free from that mindset. They've been given a relationship. Why in the world would they go back into the cage? And that's why Paul is saying what he's saying. Grace has set you free. Yes, from sin. Yes, from the power of sin. Yes, from the world that's around you, but particularly from the religious mindset of how they go about trying to please God by what they do rather than how they surrender to Him. Now, folks, I want to tell you, this is where we live today. This is the 21st century. If we're not walking in a relationship with God, we're constantly bombarded by what do we need to do for Him next? What's our next act we need to perform for God? Thank God He delivered us from that mindset. I don't know about you, but I think that's the heartbeat of Paul when he said, I'm crucified with Christ, buddy. I walked away from that mindset. Christ lives in me now. And I don't know about you, but I don't want to go back to it. Do you want to go back to it? That's what church can become, folks, if you're not real careful. How many did you have last week? Well, we had such and such. Well, God must not be blessing. Oh, that's, that's garbage. We've been set free from that mindset. And those people that came under the Galatians made it look so good to them that the Galatians bought right back into it and walked right back into the cage. Finally, the praise that grace produces. The peace that grace provides, the price that grace paid, the purpose Grace pictures, but finally the praise that grace produces. 
He says, according, all of this, deliverance and rescuing from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forevermore. Amen. It's according to the will of our God and Father that we have been set free in Christ. The words according to is the word kata. It refers to the standard of something. Uh, it's the measure of something. If you say according to, what's the measure? Well, according to the will of our God, not of man, but our God and Father. The word for will is telema. Uh, telema is a, is a great word. According to, kata, telema. Yes, <laughs> catching up with me. I moved too quickly. Telema. You know what telema is? It's the divine intent that God says, this is going to happen. I'm going to get involved in it to make certain it takes place. And no man, no man will thwart the purposes of God. That's what the will of God is. God's going to see it happen. God is going to see to it. And so God saw to it that you and I this morning could be set free from the religious mindset. Understand that Christ and the Spirit are equal to God the Father. So a better way of saying this verse perhaps would be according to the will of God who is also our Father. Because we've got to remember it's one God who is also our Father. As our perfect Father, He saw fit to deliver us from an evil system, a religious system of thinking that focuses on man and what man can do. Our freedom in Christ from this present evil world's way of thinking and living is the divine intent of the Father. And He got involved. And Jesus came and died and shed His blood on the cross so that you and I could be set free. Do you understand what a slap in the face it is to grace when we choose to go back up under law? When we go back to measuring everything that we do? When we go back to taking the credit and giving God token glory for what we do? What a slap in the face it is for what grace really is. It was never and can never be. Grace can never be and was never according to any merit on our part. If you can do something for God and experience His grace other than surrender to Him, then you're not experiencing His grace. Paul is insisting on the fact that we are now in the age of grace. This was the divine intent of God. This was the purpose for which Christ died on the cross and the purpose that He rose again. It's the gospel of Christ and His death and resurrection that transfers us out from under the bondage to this present evil age. And it's impossible demands that it puts upon us. Paul, with these wonderful thoughts in mind, bursts into praise. Now, I love this. This has happened to me many times when I've been preaching. Somebody says, did he speak in tongues? No, we know exactly what he said. Spoken a language that is communicable to all of us. These people that jump off into that kind of thing, to me, need help. That's not what's happening here. What's happening here is he turns everything back towards God. It's almost like even in his writing the epistle to the, uh, the Galatians that Paul gets so caught up in it that he can't stand it. And he sees, he sees his own freedom. He's been a religionist for all of his life, and God has taken him out from under this. And all of a sudden it dawns on him what it cost God to do this. And this was the intent that God had, a relationship, not a religion. And he breaks into praise. And he says in verse 5, to whom, God, be the glory forevermore. Amen. The word for glory is doxa, which means the proper recognition you give to somebody once you've experienced him. Once you begin to understand who he is, you can then give him the proper recognition that's due to him. 
But he does something unique here. And I don't know if I can preach it right. I don't know if it'll get out right. He puts the definite article before the word glory. And folks, this takes us out of our mind right now. You can't begin to understand what he just said. I don't think Paul did. It's under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God. When he puts the glory, he means all of the glory, not that which man can give. Man will never be able to give God the glory he deserves. He's talking about the glory that God deserves. He puts a definite article in front of it. A million years into heaven, we'll walk down the, down the streets of heaven, if that's what they are. I don't know. I haven't been there yet. But we walked in heaven. And when we see him and see the marks on his hands and realize what it took to set us free from the penalty of sin, the power of sin, and the religious damning mindset that infects this world, we'll fall down on our face and we'll praise him for a million years and a million years upon a million years. And all the glory, all the glory that man could never touch is what he deserves for what he has done for you and I. That's what he's talking about. <laughs> Paul finishes and he said, amen. You know what amen means? We say it all the time, don't we? Do we even know what it means? It means may this always be so and don't you dare think about changing it. That's amen. Next time you say amen to your children, maybe they could help. <laughs> That'd be help to understand. I have said it. <laughs> That's it. Do you understand that when Paul writes this book, folks, this is not a friendly letter. He is upset in a righteous way. Why? Because all that I've just preached to you, they've taken and just thrown it over here and said, we'd rather do something for God. Why did the world did they do that? Because of some deceivers that got amongst them and made it look good. Numbers, nickels, noses. And they got back in that old religious mindset. And he's, this is why Paul starts like he starts. He builds a foundation he will not leave. He'll continue to build on. The church of Galatia stood guilty, choosing to walk away from all that it had cost God to give them the freedom that they had, to give them the relationship with him that they had. No wonder Paul is upset. Religion usurps the glory away from God and puts it on man. I was on a tour I haven't done too many uh, cruises. I love cruises, by the way. <laughs> if anybody ever wants to go on a cruise and wants to invite me, I will go. I will go. Have bags, we'll travel. I thought that'd be the most boring thing in the world. Man, I've never had so much fun in all my life. Never gained so much weight as I have in all my life. <laughs> Midnight, they have a spread that'll knock you out. I mean, you're talking about acid reflux for the rest of your life. I mean, it's awesome. We got up to someplace up... Uh, where was it? Nova Scotia someplace. And we got off and was touring around and they took us to this big uh, cathedral. We walked in the cathedral and the big stained glass windows and all the different stuff. And maybe that's your thing, maybe it's not. But I heard one lady walk up and she said, you know what I miss in my life? And somebody said, what's that? Oh, I miss the liturgy. I miss the, I miss the statues. I miss the, the stained windows. I miss all of this in my life. And I don't know her intent. So I'm not going to try to insult her. But I will tell you what came to my mind. If you were walking in the light of the glory of God, you would never again give a thought to a stained window. You'd never again give a thought 
to a sacrament. You would never again give a thought to a liturgy. My friend, you now are experiencing the fullness of the resurrected Christ paid for by His death on the cross. What a difference. What a difference. I want to ask you a question. In the spiritual world, what turns you on? What turns you on? Oh, Brother Wayne, I like it when it's quiet and pious so I can catch up on my prayer life, which I didn't have all last week. I like it when things are this way or that way. Oh, my friend, when you walk in the glory of God, you're just glad to be a part. And the joy in your heart is going to touch everybody around you. Religion or relationship. That's the premise of Galatians. And I want to tell you, folks, we're just getting started. He hadn't touched it yet. You wait till we get to three, four, and five. Oh, that might be a time to take your vacation. <laughs> Buddy, he is going to nail it to the wall and solve it once for all. Does Hoffmantown want to be a religious body of believers, or does Hoffmantown want to be a body that experiences the fullness and the power of the Lord Jesus Christ as we live surrendered to Him and let Him make this church what He wants it to be? That's Christianity. And I mean from the nursery to the adults. That's my prayer. It'll happen right here. For additional resources or to view our TV program, log on to jashow.org. That's jashow.org.